Last Sunday, we began a sermon series called All In, and we began this journey. In the first century, a small group of people believed that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. They called themselves the way, and I said last week that the Roman pagan world called them Christians after the one they followed. An interesting thing about this movement, and we're going to look at scripture passages real quick again. An interesting thing about this movement is that the only way to describe this movement, this revolution that changed their world upside down with the gospel is the word all or everyone. Acts 1.14, they all join together constantly in prayer. Acts 2.1, when the day of Pentecost came, they they were all together in one place. Verse 4, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Verse 44, everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. Verse 44, all the believers were together and had everything in common. All. Everyone. Acts 4.31, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Verse 32, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. Verse 33, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. X 5.12, the apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. At significant times and places in the book of Acts, the only way to describe what was happening in this movement that changed the world for Jesus is the word all and to everyone. And the key is this. This was not a movement of pastors, of priests, of the spiritual elites, the seminary trained. This was a movement of average, ordinary, everyday people who recognized that a calling, a a movement, a, a mission as large and expansive as this to partner with God in bringing about the rule and reign of God to restore me to all creation to usher in the kingdom of God. A movement expansive as this, mission is expansive as this, needs the participation of all, of everyone, not just some, not just a few. And we said last week that the church in North America particularly has lost sight of this incredible biblical principle. And last week, real quick, we talked about, as we began this journey, Ephesians 2, where we said all in everyone is a building block. And we talked about how every one of us is independently joined to other living stones with Christ as our cornerstone. And the question that we asked is, are we so joined, relationally connected to others in the body that if we were to stop showing up, the whole thing would fall apart? Let me give you, let me give you a visual of what was happening in the church. The early church was contracting and then expanding. Contracting and then expanding. Contracting, community, relationship, depth, intimacy, expanding, mission, mission, mission. The church gathered, gathered, gathered. Then the church scattered, scattered, scattered. 
The church gathered, gathered, gathered Sundays in homes, and then they scattered, they scattered, they scattered. They were contracting, contracting, contracting. They were expanding, they were expanding, they were expanding. And they changed their world with the gospel. Today, we're talking about not just the church gathered, but the church scattered. We're talking about not just contracting, but expanding. The big theme is this. And I put it up here. When you get saved, God doesn't just save you from something, but God saves you for something. And we all say this together. Ready? When God saves you, God doesn't just save you from something, but God saves you for something. Majority of us who grew up in church perhaps heard this narrow theology that said the entirety of the Christian life is that God saves you from hell. That's the climax of the Christian life, right? We get saved from going to hell. And the rest of the Christian life is sort of coasting, trying to be a good moral person. When in fact what the Bible says is the the essence of the Christian life is that God doesn't save us from something, but that God saves us from something. A life of rebellion, sin, and eternal separation from God, but God saves us for that salvation and the point of it is the beginning life of a much larger, greater life where we get on mission with God. Get on mission and joining in the work that God is doing in the world today. What is your view of the Christian life that God has called you to? Is it one of God has saved me from something so I just close for the rest of my life? Or is it that God has saved me for, in Jesus, a mission to join him in this incredible work? That's where we're going today. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, as you're opening to that, just a couple introductory remarks. There's a shift that happens in Luke chapter 9. See, the the biblical authors, especially the gospel writers, wrote with intention and first chapters in the book of Luke, chapters 1 through 9, Luke is asking the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And Luke chapter 10, he pivots and he begins to ask this question. If Jesus is the Son of God, if Jesus is the eternal Son of God come to earth, how then shall we live? How then shall we live? How then shall we live? And beginning in Luke chapter 10, Luke begins to answer that question. And in a word, he says, we live as disciples. We live as disciples. We live as disciples. And Luke chapter, to the rest of the book, he paints a picture of what it means to live as disciples. And immediately, the first thing he wants you to know is that disciples are sent people. Disciples are sent people. Disciples of Jesus Christ. More than anything else, he says, I want you to know that disciples of Jesus are sent to proclaim and to demonstrate the gospel. They are sent to speak and to embody the kingdom. Disciples are sent people. Luke chapter 10. Here we go. After, the Lord, after this, the Lord appointed 72 Make a note of that. Others and sent them two by two. Make a note of that. Ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. Verse 3. Go, I am sending you. All these sermon points this morning, I want us to say together. Here's the first one. Ready? Every disciple is sent. In order to understand the context of Luke chapter 10, for it to really hit home, 
you got to flip a page backwards and go to Luke 9. Because I want to show you what happens in Luke 9. Luke 9, when Jesus had called the 12 together, the apostles, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure all diseases. And he sent them out, there's that word, over and over again, to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. So in this passage in Luke 9, Jesus gets the 12 apostles, the 12 disciples, the handpicked chosen disciples, the future leaders of the church, and he gave them the, the, the mission and the authority to do everything that Jesus is doing, to cast out demons, to heal the sick, and to proclaim the gospel. Real quick on a side note, can we all agree that the mission of Jesus was a full holistic mission? He didn't just come, listen carefully, to proclaim the kingdom, to talk about, the, what did he do? He came to heal the sick. He came to restore bodies. He came to restore communities. He came to restore all facets of creation that's unraveling because of sin, to, re to, to reweave it, to, to, to mend it, to put it together. And Jesus gives the same ministry to the disciples. He says, I want you to go out with the same full mission that I have, with the authority that I have, to, 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 to talk about, to proclaim, to preach that the rule and reign of God has come to restore all things. And I want to give you authority and the power to mend the bodies to set free people who are under the oppression of evil spirits. And if we had Luke 9, and we jump right to Luke 12 or Luke 11, here's what we'd do. Our theology would be mission, ministry. It's for who? It's for the apostles. It's for the disciples. It's for the 12 it's for those that are specially chosen by God, the seminarians, the pastors. That's who the mission and ministry is. And yet we have Luke 9 where he sends out the 12, and we have Luke 10 where he sends out who? Well, sends out who? The 72. So the question is asked, what is that number about? Why not 64? Why not 68? Why not 79? Why the number 72? And the old commentators will tell you, that when you look at the Greek translation of the Old New Testament, Old Testament, called the Septuagint, you go to Genesis chapter 10. Listen carefully. You go to Genesis chapter 10. In Genesis chapter 10, we find the table of the nations. There's no nations at that time that represented the entire world. And in it, in Genesis chapter 10, we find how many nations? 72 nations. Meaning 72 throughout Scripture represents what? Everybody, the whole people. What is Jesus' point? And you can't miss this. Jesus is saying the typical mentality in churches might be mission, ministry, this incredible thing that God has called us to do. It's for the 12, the seminary trained, the pastors, the spiritual elites. And yet Jesus says, I want you to know, disciple of Jesus, this mission, this ministry is for who? For everybody, for everyone, it's for all the people. Mission is for all the people, not just the spiritual elite. The word send, as some of you know, in Latin is the word missio, from where we got the English word mission. Everybody who comes into contact with Jesus, the Bible is sent. Let me describe it this way. A disciple is someone who is radically called in. 
A disciple is someone who is called radically in. If you're a disciple of Jesus, you're not just called into a superficial relationship with Jesus. You are called into an intimate, deep relationship with Jesus where you know him intimately. You're radically called in. And the same, Jesus says, at the same time, anyone who is radically called in is what? Radically called, say it with me, called out. Anyone who is radically called in to experience blessing, healing with Jesus is also radically called out. Can I give you some examples? Abraham, Genesis 10. Abraham, come on in. Come on in. Come closer. Look at the stars in the sky. Can you count them? I can't. There's too many. I know. That's how your descendants are going to be. Now what? I send you out. Go from among your people. Go from among your people and be the blessing. Moses, Moses, come on in. Come on in. Take off your shoes. This is holy ground. Take off your shoes. Come closer. I'm Yahweh. Come closer. And once he encounters God, what does he do? He says what? He says what? I want you to what? Go speak to Pharaoh. Can I give you another example? I could go on and on and on. Isaiah, chapter 6. Isaiah, come on in. Come on in. I'm going to touch your lips. I'm going to make you clean. I'm going to make you pure. And then the next question is what? Now, who will go for me? If you are a follower of Jesus, hear this loud and clear. God never calls you radically in without calling you radically what? Out. Anyone who is radically called in is called, what did Peter, Peter, make it tangible for Here's what it means. When you and I experience God's blessing, God says the only reason why you're blessing is so that you can now be a blessing under someone else. I've experienced healing. He has healed me. God says the only reason why you experience healing in my name is so that what? You can now be a healer. Are you with me? God never calls you in without radically calling you out. Now, here's the, check this out. Do you know why that happens to someone who's genuinely encountered the gospel? Do you know why anyone who's genuinely encountered the gospel is absolutely radically in mission and living their lives out? Here's the reason why. God comes along and says, listen, if, when you don't know me and have a relationship with me, you and I live our entire lives trying to find our own salvation. Try to find our own identity, our own sense of worth, our own sense of being, our own sense of I'm okay, whether it be work, relationship, whatever, ministry sometimes for some of us. We live our lives. Now, here's what happens when you use all of these things to try and find an identity for yourself. We become really, really self-absorbed. And we become about my problems, my issues, my needs. My desires, my wants, my priorities. And God comes along and he says, when you encounter me, I've healed you of that. I heal you of that. I've healed you of your longing for beauty. I'm the beauty you're ultimately after. I've healed you of the love you're longing for. I'm the love. Now, we don't experience it to the fullest extent here on earth, but God says no excuse. When you've experienced and encountered my healing, my blessing, and you're healed and you're blessed, 
we begin to not just self-absorb, self-absorb, my pain, my needs, my desires, God says, you begin to look what? You begin to look what, church? You begin to look out. Are you living in mission? Have you been healed? Have you been blessed? Are you living in mission where you've no longer turned inward in self-absorption and my needs and my desires, but you're looking out and you're going, who can I bless? Who can I heal? Genesis chapter 4, Samaritan woman at the well. Do you remember? Samaritan woman at the well. And then multiple husbands and she's now living with someone who's not her husband. And Jesus comes and he heals her. And this is a wonderful, wonderful picture. Disciples have gone out of town to get food, right? And they come back. They come back and they think Jesus is really hungry. They go, Jesus, aren't you hungry? And Jesus says this. It's amazing. He says, there's something more important than food. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. He says, then he says, look out. Look at the people that are coming. Look at the people that are out there. Look at all the needs that are out there. My food, the thing that nourishes me, is to do the will of the one who sent me. Anyone who recognizes the truth that you are a disciple who's radically called in to be radically called out lives with this constant awareness of sentness. And you get up. Rashida, are you resonating with this? You get up every morning. I'm serious. You get up tomorrow morning. And if your prayer is, my food is to do the will of the moon sent me, you will look at your workplace differently. I hate my job. Not the issue. Do you really think you're there by accident? Do you really think you're at that boring, lame, I said it, job by coincidence? I'm gonna, Darius. Like half the people just groaned right now. I know you know what they're talking about. Do you really think in Ephesians 2, 10, 1, it says, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, that God doesn't know that he has particular, specific things for you to do. Let me put it this way. There are hands that only you can hold. There are hands that only, I'm I'm telling you, in your workplace, there are people whose hands only you can hold. What do I mean? God has wired you with your experiences, the good and the bad, your your, your race, your ethnicity, your culture, your age, your gender, all of these experiences, and wired you in such a way that there is somebody whose hands need to be held by you. There are certain demons that only you can drive out. Daniel, you hear what I'm saying? There are only certain, you guys, are you living, am I living with this awareness that tomorrow Monday as we get up, God, you have sent me into my workplaces, homes, into my schools, into my family, into my neighborhoods. You have sent me there. I'm not there by accident. I've been radically called in to be radically called out. And I have a mission that nobody else on this planet can fulfill but me. What is it? God, what is it? Are you asking that? Are you sitting there going, it's such a waste of time? 
Look around you. Why am I here? Look around you. Who? What? Where? Is Jesus sending you to? Every disciple is. By the way, can I just. So, researching this, I intentionally listened to songs out there written by some of the more profound artists, poets, songwriters, musicians, are poets of our day, right? And you realize that so much of the raw, honest wondering, and I, and I hear this and I appreciate it, from a lot of the poets of our culture, of our society, is a wrestling with the sense of, is there anything to life? What's this all about? Is there meaning, rhyme, purpose for me being here? And Jesus says, if you're a follower of Jesus, you never have to answer that, ask that question. It's not purposelessness, it's purposeful sentness. Do you know what that is? What if you got up, I got up tomorrow morning, and we said, God, as I walk into that place, as I go there, as I meet them, as I... It's not a matter of whether or why you're... you're, you're you've sent me here. Now, what do you want me to do? Second, uh, I just real quick, we're not going to spend time long. Uh, do, do, do you notice that God, Jesus sends them what? Two at a time. Do you notice that? Don't you think that's cool? Don't you think that's cool? Why? Because every disciple is sent in community. Every disciple is sent in community. I don't even have to go long, so I won't. <laughs> How many of you know that you can't fulfill the mission out there unless you have community supporting you? Can I get an Amen. How many of us know if you are living this radically sent out life, the Bible says you got at least three enemies. You got the world or the system of the world. You have Satan, the enemy, who's after you. And you also have you and my, our old nature that's constantly warring within us. And if you're genuinely living this mission, why is it so cold in here, by the way? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That just entered my mind. Why is it so cold in here? Sorry. Okay. Um, what was I talking about? Michael, where are you going? There's nothing you can do. It's getting warmer, okay. Is it just me? Is it cold in here? It's cold in here, okay. All right. All right. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Um, it's cold in here. That's why I'm like, I'm sounding more edgy than I normally am, and I sound angrier. It's because I'm cold. Sorry. Um, Jesus sends them two by two. And I, look, I'm not going to spend long. Listen, listen. Do you, know, do you know why we gather as a church? We gather as a church in small groups throughout the week, and we gather as a church on Sundays. It's so that we could pound into your head. We could pound into your head. We could pound into your head the gospel of Jesus Christ. During our worship service this morning, I loved one of the prayers that a sister prayed. She said, you know what? Throughout this week, God, we have been pounded into our heads lies. Lies about who we are. Lies about where identity comes from. Lies about where self-worth comes from. Lies about who we are. And she said, we pray. That as a people of God this morning, that we would hear truth. 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 
If you are genuinely living out a mission, I, I'm telling you right now, you cannot do this unless you're a group of people who love you, who encourage you, who support you, who say, keep going. We're here for you. We're with you. Are you in that? We talked about the last week, so we're moving on. Verse 3. Go, I'm sending you out like lamb among wolves. Of when you enter a house, verse 8, peace to this house. I'm skipping some verses here, verse 7. Stay there eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages, verse 8. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. Just real quick, how many of you guys have been in missions where you had to live out that verse that it was absolutely, utterly terrifying? Anybody? Anybody? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I'm talking about, right? Okay. Uzbekistan involved a dog. That's all I'll say. We'll move on. Verse 9, heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near you. Verse 11, yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. Here's a third sermon point. Let's say it together, church. Every disciple is sent to proclaim and embody the kingdom. We're sent up, but what are we called to do? Two things. We're called to tell them and to heal them. We're called to proclaim it and proclaim to live it. We're come to speak it, and we're come to make it tangible, make it visible, make it real. Can I say something? For a lot of us, we're opting for one over the other, and many of us are doing neither. We're sent out this incredible mission to speak and to embody the kingdom, and many of us We'll choose one over the other, and many of us also do neither. We fail to speak the gospel of the kingdom with boldness and regularity, and we don't live with conviction and radical sacrifice. Many of us in our church struggle with this aspect of speaking, proclaiming. And I think we do for three reasons, real quick. We fail to proclaim and speak. One reason is, um, I stopped by Dan Radakovich's office this week. Dan Radakovich, one of our elder statesmen. He and I are sort of prayer partner, accountability partners, and we're hanging out, hung out for two hours at his law firm office in South Loop, and afterwards, we're just going down. So I can come home. And he says, I want to introduce you to my coworkers. I'm like, okay, introduce me to coworkers. Um, so he brings me to this office. There's two other attorneys that are part of the office. And, and he says, hey, I want you to so-and-so and so-and-so. I said, hey, how's it going? And one of the gentlemen just kind of blurts out. He's like, hey, if you offer a prayer to God, pray for me. I was like, okay. People do that with pastors, you know. <laughs> um, like when we're at restaurants, everybody wants the pastor to pray. I don't know why that is. We hate that, by the way, just to let you know. Um, Mike, you know what I'm talking about? Nathan, yeah, pastors just kind of. So we're going down, and then, and then Dan goes, hey, hey, Pastor Peter, I got to tell you something. Dan's typical. Like, you got, you, do you know what that was? And I said, well, what was it? He goes, that man. I said, what, what about him? He's like, he, he, has, he has four kids. He and his wife are both Northwestern graduates. They have four kids. They all graduate from Northwestern. Successful, brilliant. And he says, David, 
His mother is, is, a, is a solid Christian who's been praying for his salvation. He wants nothing to do with God. And he goes, I was shocked when he asked you that. I thought, oh, you know, I, people were just kind of like making fun of pastors by saying stuff like that. Hey, pastor, pray for me, all right? So he's like, you don't understand. I don't know how long somebody's been praying, but that moment right there, he was just, blo- I, I'm still kind of like, yeah, but he was just kind of blown away. And then it dawned on me as I was driving home. I'm like, we live in a city where there are pretty, attractive, successful, brilliant people. And outside, they look like they have everything together. And the inside, they're falling apart and they're incredibly gifted at faking it. You know how I know? Because I do it all the time. Have you and I fallen for the lie that people actually don't need God? Because you look at them and go, well, why would he need God? Why would she need God? Have we convinced ourselves externally that there isn't a hunger and a desire to want to know God? Another reason why I think why we struggle with proclaiming it, many of us spend 24-7 with people who are already moving in the direction of God. Here's what I found as a pastor. When you claim to have a relationship with God and yet show no interest in someone who doesn't know God, that person often thinks that God is not interested in them. Can I say that again? When you claim to have a relationship with God, and people know. And you show no interest, no desire to get to know people, genuinely get to know people, not to convert them, genuinely get to know people. The very same people often walk away going, God is not interested in me. Who are you spending the majority of your time with? People that are moving in the direction of God? Or people who are genuinely searching, seeking? Third, third reason why we struggle with this. Can I put up a quote here? <laughs> I love this. How many of you heard the preach the gospel at all times and when necessary use words? We go, that's in my motto. I love that. St. Francis. Uh, first of all, St. Francis of Assisi has never said that. Factually, never said that. And secondly, more importantly, he never lived his life that way. What do I mean? When some of us go, well, I'd rather live it than tell it. I know what you mean. I know what you mean. Because it is the height of hypocrisy just to talk, 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 and not live it. And I am totally with you. We are all with you. But here's the thing. We were never told. We were never told that our lives would replace the proclamation. But we were told that our lives would be a demonstration of our proclamation. Are you hearing me? There's a difference. There's a difference. We are told to proclaim it and yes, live it. Make it tangible, make it visible, make it authentic. But we were never told to not speak it and in replace of that, just live it. Never. We have the words of Jesus right here, verse 9. Tell them, tell them, tell them the kingdom of God. Verse 16, he who listens to you, listens to me. We are told to proclaim 
and to share. Now, here's the thing. I, need, I can't spend a whole lot of time on this, but we need to go. Uh, the, one of the reasons why I think we struggle with this is because of a fundamental misunderstanding of what the gospel is. Because for some of us, particularly those of us who've been hurt by Christians in the church, and you think of Christians as someone who wants to shove the gospel down your throat and judgmental self-righteous, I want to show you what the gospel in the historical context meant. Here's the definition. The word gospel The word gospel in the first century meant this. It was news of an objective, history-changing event that changed everyone's situation, one that everyone needed to respond to. So, for example, in the coronation of Octavian as the emperor of Rome, here's what went out. This is the beginning of the gospel of Caesar Augustus. The the gospel was the declaration that Octavian had ascended to the throne. It was news. Gospel was news. Gospel was news of a life-changing event that changed everyone's situation. And the heralds took it everywhere. Heralds went everywhere and said, the gospel of Caesar Augustus, the gospel of Caesar Augustus, the gospel of Caesar Augustus. And so two things real quick before we move on. Number one, can we all agree that the gospel is news and not advice? Can I get it? Amen. Gospel is news, not advice. Do you know why I say this? Because some of us still live as though gospel is advice and not news. The gospel is not a list of things you need to do so that you could earn favor with God and be right with him. The gospel is news of what Jesus Christ has already done so that he could make you right with God. Is that good news? The gospel is news, not advice. The gospel, listen to me, Christianity isn't Christianity. The gospel is not teaching, philosophy, list of moral standards for you to do so that God would approve of you. The gospel is news, an event that happened that changed the course of history forever. That's awesome news. Secondly, though, it was news of a history-changing event that affects everybody. Listen carefully. You couldn't go up to someone and go, well, he's your emperor, but he's not mine emperor. Did you hear what I said? In the first century, you couldn't go up to someone and go, well, he's your emperor. Take him, leave him, whatever, but he's not my emperor. Everybody, whether you liked it or not, was affected by the fact that he had ascended to the throne as the emperor, and you needed to adjust to that truth. By the way, the most famous of this was in 490 B.C. on the plains of Marathon. The Persians had invaded Greece. And the Athenian army went out to meet with the Persians. And here's the thing. Everybody knew that the Athenians had no chance, no chance whatsoever to beat the Persians. And so there was rioting in the streets back in Greece. And people were going nuts. And history says that to everybody's amazement, guess who won? Greece won. Somebody needed to take that news that Greece had won back to Athens or there will be chaos. There will be chaos. So they sent one runner from Marathon to Athens, which was 22.5 miles. How much is it? 22.5 miles, which is I think where we get the modern distance for And the story goes that when he finally entered the town, that runner declared, we won! The victor has won! He fell and died. 
That's what the story goes. Listen to this. If Jesus Christ is who he says he is, this is huge, you guys. If Jesus Christ, if Jesus Christ tells you and I, go tell the gospel that the kingdom of God is at hand. And if Jesus Christ is who he says, do you see the magnitude of this? Jesus Christ casually, he does throughout the New Testament, says this, I am the second person of the triune God. I am the uncreated creator, the alpha and the omega, without beginning and the end. If Jesus is a prophet who came to do a little teaching and give us moral teaching, you and I can go, that's good advice. How to live, how to pray, how to be right with God, I'll take it or leave it. But if Jesus Christ is the Son of God who was born, who lived, who died, and rose again from the dead, conquering Satan's sin and evil once and for all, and if that life-changing event changed the course of history forever, what we share with the news, what we share with the world is Jesus Christ, the return of the King is at hand, and we all need to respond to his kingship or history will leave you behind. History will leave you in its wake. The news that we are to share with people is that Jesus Christ, the King, has risen and He is one day going to come and usher in fully the rule and reign of God and restore and heal all things. It's happened. He's coming back. Respond to it or history will leave you in its wake. That is the gospel that we are charged to share with the world. If that's the case, let me talk to you Christians real quick. If the gospel is not teaching moral advice, if the gospel is that this news, this event has happened, that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and is coming back, to not share that with the world is the most wicked thing to do because it would be the most unloving thing to do. We are not going out to the world and saying we're better. If we do, you don't understand the gospel. We are not going out to the world and saying, I'm more moral superior, I'll get to end of it. If we do, we don't understand the gospel. We are saying, an event has changed the course of history forever. The Son of God rose from the dead and is coming back to judge the living and the dead. And everything is now different. If that's true, that's like finding a cure for cancer and saying, I'm going to share with my friends and my loved ones, but I don't want to share with anybody else. It will be the most unloving thing to do. You guys, we have this life-changing news of who he is and what he has done. Are you sharing it? Are you declaring it? Are you going out? Are you going out into the world, even if we would fall dead in our attempt of saying, rejoice, the king has triumphed. The king has triumphed. We are charged to speak and to declare the gospel. And secondly, not just to proclaim it, but to embody it. And I'll be real quick about this because we talk about this a lot in our church. We're not just sent out to be messengers, but neighbors, to be great neighbors, to be the best neighbors possible. And this is the reason why the mission of the church is so amazing. He says, you don't have to be a great preacher. You don't have to be a great teacher. It's anything you do. 
Jesus says even a cup of cold water in my name. Jesus says in a cold winter, a warm cup of tea or coffee in my name. It's feeding, it's caring, it's holding hands. Anything you do in my name, whether they believe or not, whether they believe or not in my name. And then look what he says. Verse 12, I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Verse 13, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. By the way, Jesus gives us here clues on how to give the message that I'm talking about to the people. The word woe, (laughs) the word woe doesn't mean curse you. As soon as I look at us, the church, and how we respond and proclaim the gospel, whoa, whoa, whoa is empathy, distress. Do you know what's happening? Jesus is saying, my heart's broken. Why are you doing that? Do you know what the consequence is not responding to this is? It's deep empathy. It's deep distress. And I want to just real quick, I want to tell you, That for anybody here, if you're not a Christian, you're going, oh, man, that whole proclaiming thing. I've had some bad experiences. And for those of us that are Christians, we need to hear this. When the gospel encounters you and you encounter Jesus, the way that we share it is with the tremendous amount of gentleness and love. It's with the heart that's broken, with deep distress and deep empathy. What the Bible says is that Christians might be persecuted, but Christians can never be persecutors. When somebody doesn't respond well to you, when somebody rejects the message of the gospel of the kingdom, and your response is one of meanness, dispiritedness, judgment, cutting them off, so on and so forth, the Bible says, and you haven't even begun to understand what the essence of the gospel is, because you're not saved by your works, you're saved by grace. And so the result is a tremendous amount of gentleness and kindness and patience towards somebody who doesn't accept you, who doesn't believe in you, and not one of self-righteous condemnation. Jesus, whoa, whoa, his heart is broken. Deep distress, deep distress, deep empathy for those who don't believe. See, what you'll find, what I'll find is when we go out there, If you truly believe that we are saved by grace, you won't be surprised that the non-Christian you're talking to is kinder than you, is gentler than you, is more moral than you. It's just a better person than you. Why? Because we're not saved because we're good people. We're saved because of him. So when we go, listen, when we go, this amazing news, by the way, I just did a little sort of short, this is what we go, news that Christ has risen from the dead. And they go, are you crazy? Are you stupid? Our response isn't one of, well, how dare you? Our response is one of deep empathy, deep distress. I want you to know. I want you to believe. Verse 16, whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects you rejects me. But whoever rejects me rejects him who sent me. And verse 17, the 72 return with joy. Say this together, everybody. Ready? Every disciple is sent on a joyful mission. Let's say this again. Ready? Every disciple is sent on a joyful Do you know what's striking about this? Do you remember way back in verse 3 what Jesus said? He says, I'm sending you. Go! 
And I just kind of didn't do it. He said, go, I'm sending you like lambs among wolves. My intention just kind of didn't really get that part. What is Jesus saying? John 17, Jesus' high sleep prayer. He's praying for his disciples. He's praying for you and me. Future. And he going, he's going, Father, as you have sent me, now I send them. Like lamb among wolves. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am sending them into the hardest, the most difficult, the most broken, the most helpless, the most hopeless of all places. Now with the cushy mission, but a difficult mission. And then he says in verse 13, and I do that so that their joy may be full. So that their joy may be full. Do you know why many of us in this room have no joy? We have no joy because we have no mission. We have no joy because we have no mission. That just doesn't make any sense, Jesus. Lamb among wolves, hard things, tough things, broken things, helpless things, hopeless things. It just doesn't sound like joy. And Jesus says, here is the upside down life in the kingdom. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be what? When was the last time Jesus comforted you because you mourned for someone who's lost? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For what? Theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are those who lose their life for my sake. For as when you lose it, it is there that you shall what? Find it. We have no joy because we have no mission. Our lives and the sum total of it is live for us and us only. We come most alive when we are living for a cause that's larger than us. When the end goal of our life is to be happy, we will never be happy. Happiness as an end is a dead end. Happiness and joy comes from something. If you're walking around today going, what do you want to be? What's your ultimate goal? Your answer is, I just want to be happy. You will never find it. Our greatest fear in life should not be that we will fail. Our greatest fear in life will be that we will give our lives for something that at the end of the day will not matter. How's your joy life? Is there something in your life that you're saying, I am willing to die for this. I am willing to live for this. I am willing to sacrifice for this because I believe that the kingdom is here. And what I do matters. Lastly, I'm almost done. Carlton, you come on up. To 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. Verse 20, however, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you. 
but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Here's the last one, all together. Every disciple is sent with the right motivation. One more time, church. Every disciple is sent with the right motivation. If you're not a Christian, by the way, Jesus is not into deflating joy. He enhances joy. He's about bringing much joy. If you want proof, read John chapter 2. Jesus loves celebration, giving joy. And yet, here in this text, there is something that's so serious going on in the disciples that literally, my translation, he says, wipe the smile off your face. Wipe the smile off your face. To which I'm sure the disciples are like, what? Jesus, the spirits submit to us in your name. Here's what I think is going on, church. And please, please, please receive this deep into your heart as you go out this week. She's saying there's nothing wrong with the fact that you're doing this amazing thing. There's nothing wrong with the fact that spirits are actually submitting to you. But what are the disciples saying? And I just noticed it just this week. Disciples are not saying, wow, Lord, people are being freed. Wow, Lord, marriages are being healed. Wow, Lord, parents and children are getting back together. Wow, Lord, we're working to help people. Wow, Lord, these amazing things are happening to bring restoration. What are the disciples saying? Disciples come back saying, wow, Lord, aren't we something? They submit to us. And Jesus says, there is something so dangerous that's going on right now. Matter of fact, I saw somebody turn into Satan because of that. What is Jesus saying? What's happening in the heart of the disciples is not these amazing things that they're doing. For many of us, the challenge and the issue is not that we rejoice in bad things, but that we rejoice in the wrong things. And this is great counseling. Jesus is saying it's amazingly wonderful to do all this ministry, to help, to be on mission. But he's saying, don't find your identity in that. Don't find your significance in that. Don't find your worth in that. Because it's spiritual poison. To really understand what he's saying, you've got to do the second clause, which is do not rejoice that the Spirit submit to you, but rejoice that your names are what? Written in heaven. In ancient times before printing, if your name was actually written, it meant you were somebody. A random person's name wasn't written. Most likely the metaphor is you'd go to a town and there would be a town book, a town roll, a census like if you will. And there would be people's names written and they were only citizens of that town and a small minority. In other words, to have your name written meant that you were somebody. Not a nobody. That you were somebody. And Jesus is saying, how are you finding your name? What are you doing to find your name? And oh, by the way, tomorrow when you get up, 
you're going to hear thousands of voices that says, write your name, write your name, write your name, write your name. That's right. Work hard, work hard, work hard. Success, success, success. Relationship. Do these things. Write your name, write your name. Because nobody else will write your name. Shed blood, sweat, and tears. Find your name, find your name, find your name. Jesus says, you buy into that, that spiritual poison. He says, rejoice not. But rejoice that your names are already written. Ancient people also believe that at the end, there will be a book. And in this book would be all the good things you've done, all the bad things you've done. Just like typical religion, if all the good things you've done outweigh the bad things you've done, you would be safe. And Jesus says, here's the gospel. You ready? Church, you ready? He says, your name is what? Already written. Can I get an amen? Is this good news? Your name is, but I'm 25 years old. I've got a whole life to live. I might mess up. I might trip up. Jesus says, not the issue. Do you know why? Because your name is written. You're already in. Imagine going to the fanciest restaurant in Chicago. You walk up to the maitre d'. You're like, um, I know I don't look like I belong here, but I have a reservation. What's your name? Name is Peter Hong. Peter Hong. What kind of name is that? All right, hold on. Let me check. Oh, yep. Here you are. Come on in. The door that you've been knocking on for beauty, Jesus says, here's the beauty that you've sought. The door that you've been knocking on for love, Jesus says, the love that you've sought after, right here. The significance, let me in, I'm significant. Jesus says, right here. Luke 16, it's the story of Lazarus and the rich man. Lazarus winds up in heaven. Commentators note that the rich man doesn't have a name. Everybody else, Abraham, everybody else has a name in Luke 16. And people ask, why doesn't the rich man have a name? What's his name? Luke's point, that's all he is. He's just a rich man. What are you? What's your name? Is it, it's just smart. What's your name? It's just successful. What's your name? It's just, I'm a good mother. What's your name? It's just, I'm a good Christian. What is your name? The gospel says, you have a name. It's given. It's righteous. It's holy. It's beloved. It's son. It's daughter. It's child of the Most High. That is amazing. is good news.
I pray for your mouth that you would boldly and courageously and lovingly and gently proclaim the news, the event that Jesus Christ is King and that He is returning someday. I pray for your hands, that your hands would touch someone this week, that your hands would comfort someone this week, that your hands would shake someone this week, that your hands would be the loving hands that would wrap itself around someone this week. I pray for your feet, that you would go boldly where nobody wants to go, that you would go to the most difficult, most hurting, most hopeless, helpless places here in this city and abroad. And I pray most of all for your hearts, that your hearts will be captivated by the beauty of the gospel, the love you've been looking for, the beauty you've been looking for, the significance you've been looking for, the name you are trying so hard to write is written across the heart of God. Take this good news. And as you've been called radically in, be radically called out. Be radically called out. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit today. If you are someone who needs prayer, to get this, to get this in your heart, please pray with someone from our prayer team. I would love to see a line of people that are receiving prayer. You need it. I need it. We need it. We're here for you. Have a great week. We'll see you back here next Sunday. Church, 